You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be, so go ahead and turn there. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. Underneath every couple of seats, you should find one. Mark chapter 3. It's really important that you have a Bible out in front of you. Um, we want to be a people who are about the Bible because the Bible is about Jesus, and we want to be about Jesus. So that's going to help you uh, be about Jesus. Uh, let, me, let me just start by saying thank you to Travis. I'm not sure if Travis is in here this hour. Maybe, maybe not. But Travis, there he is. Uh, but Travis preached last week and did a great job. I listened to it midweek. Yeah, he did wonderful. Um, looks like I just lost my job. Okay, good. Um, but no, he uh, preached out of Colossians 1 last week and did a really good job unfolding the implications of the gospel in our everyday life. And so if you missed that last week, I'd encourage you to go back and and grab that. Let me go ahead and uh, read Mark chapter 3 one more time, because like half of our church came in after we read it and prayed. That's just a uh, gentle poke to those who got here late. But uh, here we go. Verse 20 of Mark 3. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Verse 31. It's talking about Jesus. He's out of his mind. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Verse 33. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Great question. They should be right outside. Here's his response. Verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Hard text. Got some stuff that's going to cut across the grain of our hearts in this room, against the grain of our culture. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to uh, try to give the point of this passage, and then I want to draw out three implications from it. So let me just kind of work you through just what, what is Jesus saying here? What is he doing here? So to, to get the feel of this passage, you've got to make sure you get the context of the passage. So if, if you're going to feel the kind of sharp edge that this passage has, you need to put yourself into the shoes of Jesus's like biological birth family. So you've got to put your, yourself in the shoes of his mother of his brothers in this passage. So in verse 21, they, 20 and 21, they come out to him and it says that they were trying to seize him. Now that is like a jailer trying to seize a prisoner sort of seizing. That is not a pat on the back, a grab him by the arm. That is a jailer dragging a prisoner somewhere, sort of seizing. So, so they are worried about Jesus. And if you look at verse 21, they, they've really, they're really thinking he's lost his mind. That he has gone crazy. Now, Jesus kind of unpacks the whole parable of the, uh, or the story of the unforgivable sin. And then you come down, and in verse 31, you've got the family tension that ratchets back up. So the, now his mother and his brother are outside the house, probably, at least on the outside of the crowd. His disciples are on the inside, and his mother and brother send in a note to Jesus. And the disciples in the crowd relay the, the message. Your family is outside, and they are calling for you and seeking you. Now, with that said, you see it in verse 32, that they're seeking you. Now, just a quick background note on that word seeking. That word is used 10 times in the book of Mark, in the gospel of Mark. And virtually every time it is used, it is a negative connotation. 
So it is like the religious leaders are seeking to destroy Jesus, seeking a witness against Jesus. It's that sort of seeking, seeking to trap Jesus. So every time that word seeking is used, with the exception of possibly one, it is with a negative connotation. And it is negative in this passage. This is not, uh, you know, Jesus' mother and brother coming to deliver a postcard from, from Jesus' grandma. That's not what's happening. It is them coming because they are really concerned about what Jesus is doing and saying and how he's going about it. So, so they are probably in opposition at this point to how this thing is playing out. Okay, so this is the sort of seeking we've got here. Okay, now in response to their question and kind of this statement of your, your mother and your brother's outside, they're seeking you and calling you, Jesus says this in verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, hard words here, here are my mother and my brothers. Who are my mother and my brothers? It's these people. Verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So if you want to cut to the core of what it is that Jesus is doing here, here it is. He is redefining for us, radically redefining for us, what the family is. Radically redefining this thing. He's saying this, if you want to know who my real family is, my true family is, my lasting family is, my eternal family is, if you want to know what, who that family is, like the real, like actually eternal, real family, who those people are, here's who it is. It's those who do the will of, of God. Okay, now let me just throw this one caveat because I don't, want to, I don't want to be confusing on this. In verse 35, it says, whoever does the will of God, that's, that's, that's my family. He is not saying you earn your salvation by your works or by your doing. This is not a passage trying to give you all the details of how we are made right with God or how we are justified before God. How, how God would look at us and, and say, yes, you are reconciled to me. It's not a passage that tries to do that. There are passages that center on that, like Romans 3 is one of those. So there are passages to do that. This is not. He is simply saying here, he's making this point. Whoever is in the family of God, like th that's, my, that's my family. Like whoever has been redeemed by God, rescued by God, whoever has been saved by Jesus and adopted into the family of God, that's my real family. This is what he's saying here. Okay, now let me take that truth, okay, that, that, the point of this passage, and I want to tease out three implications Three implications. So here's the first one. In light of Jesus radically redefining who our family is. Three implications. Number one. First implication goes like this. A Christian has two families, both of which are really important. A Christian has two families, not just one family. A Christian has two families. And so here's, and I want to give three clarifying statements to kind of describe what I'm talking about with this. When we say that a Christian has two families, three clarifying statements. Here's the first one. A Christian has both a family by birth and, okay, so when we're talking by birth, we're talking, I'm going to use several different words to describe this. We're talking about a biological family. We're talking about a family that you were born into or if you were adopted a family that you grew up with. We're talking about that family. So a, a Christian has both a family by birth and a family by rebirth. By like the rescue of God, like God saved you and then he adopted you and put you into a new family called the church. That Christians have both of those two families. Now, um, before we say anything else about these two families, let me just try to clarify this because I don't want to be confusing. 
This passage is not the only thing that Jesus has to say about the family, specifically our family by birth. It's not the only thing. He says much more, and the Bible says much more about our biological, about the family we were raised up in, if you were adopted, the family that you grew up in, right? The Bible says a lot more about that. Let me just kind of summarize some of what the Bible says about that. That your family that you grew up in, it is massively important, that family. It is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It's a foundational thing. So the Bible is going to say all of those things. Let me just summarize it this way. The Bible and Jesus is pro your biological growing up sort of family. It is pro that. Jesus is pro that. It's very, very important in the Bible. And because it's very important in the Bible, it is very important to us as a church. This is why you constantly hear this emphasis of specifically dads, but more generally moms and dads, being good pastors in the home. That like if you're a mom or dad in here, I want you to listen to this. The Bible is not looking, God is not looking at your church to disciple your kids. That is your job. Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6. That, That is a privilege that God has placed in your lap to do that. Like God is looking at you to be the theological equippers of your home. God is not looking at your church to be the equipper theologically of your kids. If we're just at the survey, what your kids know about the Bible, what they know about God, how their theological framework works, that is your question, not our question. Now, we want to be a great partner in that, and we want to help you in that and do everything we can to resource you and to push you toward that. But this is why it's so important to us, because when when God in the Bible looks at the the equipping and the discipling of our kids in, in our church family. It looks at parents for that. that that's, the, that's the first line of how discipleship works. So it's important to the Bible. The Bible, Jesus, is pro your biological family. We are pro your biological family. Okay, so let me just say that first. Now let me give this second clarifying thing. So we're saying you've got a family by birth and a family by rebirth. Now here's the second thing we need to know. Our family by birth, and welcome to what's going to cut across the grain of many of us in the room. Our family by birth doesn't come first. Okay, let me explain what I mean by that. I'm not talking about versus church family, your family yet. I'm talking about your family versus God. Your family does not come before God. When a person becomes a Christian, there is a line drawn in the sand that goes like this. My first commitment is to God, secondarily family. That that line needs to be clear for us in the room because it's not clear for us culturally. That, That when you become a Christian, your first allegiance, your first priority, your first love is to God, not your family. Okay, this is part of what this passage is showing us. Jesus' family is in opposition to him, and he's saying this. If I have to choose between God and the mission of God and my family, mission of God, God wins every time. This is what he's saying here. That, that at the end of the day, there is a line in the sand that says, God is the most important thing. That is my number one allegiance. It's my number one love. There is nothing that competes with that or comes before that. Okay, so the Bible affirms that your family is important, but it also affirms that your family is not ultimate. We've seen the difference in those two things. It is important, but it's not ultimate. God is ultimate. Maybe we could say it this way. The Bible affirms that your family is something, but it also affirms that your family is not everything. 
Jesus is everything, not your family. Are we seeing what, what we're trying to say here? That at the end of the day, it's God who comes before your family. Okay, now here's the reason why I think this is so important. Now listen to this next statement. Because family idolatry, making family ultimate, not God ultimate, making family everything, not something, family idolatry may be the most acceptable sin in conservative churches. Family idolatry, worshiping at the altar of family, may be the most acceptable sin in churches just like ours. Okay, so let me just try to unpack family idolatry. Idolatry is taking a good thing and making it a God thing. Idolatry is looking to anything other than God for our ultimate kind of deepest sense of identity, our deepest sense of worth, our deepest sense of value and satisfaction. So family idolatry is looking specifically away from God and to our family for our deepest sense of worth and significance and value. It, maybe you could think of it this way. It is being defined by your family. Defined by it. So we, now this could go toward a spouse specifically, that I am defined by what he or she thinks of me. It, it's just as likely or maybe even more likely in our culture to go towards our kids. See, family idolatry feels like this when, when it's directed at kids. My life only has meaning and value and worth when my kids are happy or when I am happy with my kids. Tell me that isn't in the room. I, my, my life only has worth and significance and value if I am happy with my kids or my kids are happy. I mean, that, that is like a description of our culture, isn't it? It's interesting. I was reading an article in the New Yorker, not necessarily a Christian magazine, uh, by, uh, an article by a lady named Elizabeth Colbert. And I want you to listen to her describe, she's not using this sort of language, but listen to her describe kid idolatry in our culture. She says it this way. With the exception of the imperial offspring of the Ming dynasty, I have no idea even what that is. <laughs> With the exception of the imperial offspring, it sounds really elite though, uh, offspring of the Ming dynasty and the kids of pre-revolutionary France. Listen to this statement. Contemporary American kids may represent the most indulged young people in the history of the world. The most indulged young people in the history of the world. It is not just that they've been given an unprecedented amount of stuff. They's, listen to this statement. This is wild. They've also been granted unprecedented authority. This last statement is just, I'm still trying to get over it. Parents want their kids' approval. A reversal of the past ideal of children striving for their parents' approval. I mean, tell me that's not true. Like, if you need evidence of that, go watch a Little League game of any sort. Be a third grade teacher for a second and discipline a kid and see what happens. 
If the error of the previous generation was to ignore kids, the error of our generation is to totally center our life on kids. It's family before everything, namely God. Our society is not patriarchal, matriarchal, it's kidriarchal. Everything centers on kids. Your schedule likely is completely driven by them and probably driven mad by them. But everything surrounds about what's going to make them happy? What's going to give them this? Let's make sure they've got that. Everything is driven around this idea. See, we've got a culture that worships at the altar of family. And in light of that, it's interesting to me. Think about all the testimonies that you have heard in church. And how many of them sound something like this? You know, I was all about sex, or I was all about career. I was all about money and possessions. I was all about these things. God rescued me, and now I'm all about Jesus. Okay, now think how many times you've heard something to that effect. And personally, you just check me if I'm wrong. I have never heard this story. I had made an idol out of my family, all about my family, even in front of God about my family. God rescued me, and I'm no longer all about my family. I'm about my family, but I'm no longer all about them. Now I'm all about God. Now I've been like rescued from this need of my family, so now I can actually serve my family. I've never heard that story. And it's not because it's not needed. It's because we don't have eyes to even see that. We're so blind to that. It's this culturally acceptable sin in conservative churches. Have y'all ever seen the movie Family Man, Nicolas Cage? Came out 12, 13 years ago, something like that. The long story short of it, here's the plot line. He is a rich investment banker. So he is worth millions. He's got the, you know, the penthouse. He's got the incredible nice cars. He's in the middle of doing a a $130 billion acquisition deal. So this guy has it all, but he completely, uh, for, uh, you know, stiff-armed family along the way. It's of no concern to him, family. And then kind of the the plot line goes where he uh, wakes up in this alternative universe, Alternative universe, whatever that is. And uh, he wakes up and he is all, uh, suddenly a tire salesman. He, he goes from having everything, investment banker, to broke as a joke selling tires. But he's got a family. He's got a, a wife that he said yes to 13 years ago when she was his girlfriend. He's got a wife and he's got kids. And, and as the movie starts, he just hates every bit of that. He can't stand that he's not the investment banker. He can't stand that he doesn't have the nice stuff. And he he doesn't really even like his family. But then as the movie goes on, he starts to distance himself from the life of the investment banker and starts to love the life of the family. And there's something about us when we see a story like that that just resonates with us. Yes, he woke up. He's no longer an idiot that would trade his family for a career. That's awesome. But can I tell you what I fear, like in churches just like ours, when we see a story like that? That we don't have eyes to see this. How prone we are to trade one form of idolatry for another form of idolatry. To just trade career. It's all about career. It's all about money. It's all about possessions. And now it's all about family. It's all about my kids. It's all about my wife. And can I just tell you, the Bible is not about you trying to swap idolatries. It's about us swapping all of our idolatry for Jesus. That's the point. 
And I'm just asking, do we have eyes that see that? That that at the end of the day, when we become a Christian, we are saying this, that God has ultimate allegiance in my life, not my family or anything else. So I, I think just to apply that, it would just be this simple question. What has the deeper allegiance in your heart, Jesus or your family? Which to some degree alters where you might live, what job you might take. But what has more allegiance? It's going to affect what you do on the weekend. What has more allegiance, Jesus or your family? And I just wonder if we were just to, to look at our hearts honestly, how many of us would have to say our family? I mean, if, that, if that's us today, what a great day to repent of that and to rejoice in the fact that, that the cross covers even that idolatry and can free you from even that idolatry. So second piece of, of clarifying kind of information there is family by birth doesn't come first. God comes first. Now here's the third piece of clarifying, you know, a clarifying statement. Here, here's the third one. Family by rebirth, by God's rescue in our life, that family, our, our church family, family by rebirth is more real and more lasting than family by birth. Now this, this is the shocking kind of nature of what Jesus is saying here. That this passage is supposed to take us, grab us by the shoulders, and shake us into reality. Jesus is saying, at the end of the day, do you want to know what family is more real, more lasting, more eternal? Do you want to know what family that is? It's not your family by birth. It is your family by rebirth. That, that is the more lasting, more real, and more eternal family. This is why, and let me just try to explain how, how we're family, just real quick. When God saves you, Here is what God does for you. He adopts you. Now just think about that for a second. The God of the universe, sovereign, when when he saves a person, he pulls you into his family. It's like he makes you a son or a daughter of his. So think about what a perfect father would be. Provision, protection. And that is what God perfectly is for us. We are sons and daughters of God. Now, if you're a son or daughter of God, and I'm a son of God, what does that make us? Brothers and sisters. We see in that? This is why the New Testament, Paul repeatedly refers to people as brothers and sisters. This is why the dominant imagery in the New Testament for the church is family. It's trying to get us, trying to help us see what we are when God saves us. That when God saves us, he puts us into a new family called the church. And that new family is more real and more lasting than our family by birth. When you wake up in a million years from now, your real family is going to be faded. It's going to go away. And your family by rebirth is going to be absolutely real and tangible to you. Now, let, let me just try to apply this and, and, and work through what I think the dynamic is behind this. Because I, I think at the end of the day, what has happened for most people in our culture is our family by birth means everything to us and our family by rebirth means relatively little to us. See, the, 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 and that's what this passage is trying to shake us into, trying to help us see, is 
Are we giving proper emphasis and value and importance to our family by rebirth? See, that, that's the question of this passage. And, and I'm just telling you, in our culture, the dominant way our family by birth is looked at is like this. Our family by birth is of utmost importance. Our family by rebirth is somewhere way down here. And this passage is saying it's not way down here. It's right up here. It is very, very important. It is very valuable. It is more real and more lasting than your family by birth is. Okay, so, so I think this is the dynamic. That at the end of the day, we have put all of our chips in our family by birth and put no chips into our family by rebirth. And if you want just a practical way to see this, think about the way most people relate to their church family and how different it is to how they relate to their biological family. So think about biological family first. Um, I grew up with three brothers, guess, or two brothers. There were three of us total. We fought all the time. One time my middle brother punched me in the eye because we got into a fight over the Nintendo. Do I remember those? Gave me a black eye over the Nintendo. Now, if, if we're thinking family by birth, let me tell you what I didn't do in that moment. I didn't put my stake in the ground and look at my parents and my brothers and say, I'm done. I am out of here. No more of this. That's not what I did. I didn't trade in my family for a new one. That's not what, families don't do that. If, if we're family, there's something that sticks us together even when I don't get what I want or even when I'm mistreated in my family. Now think about how this plays out in your church family. Someone makes you, okay, let, let me go at it this way. Here is the normal way I think people relate to our church family. It goes something like this. Week one of being at a church. That is the best church I've ever been at. I love that place. Week two, something happens like in week one, like somebody makes us mad. Week two, that is the worst church I have ever seen in my life. Where is another one? I, this, is the way, this is the way people relate to it. So it's someone makes me mad. I don't get what I want. So I trade in this church family and I go get into another church family. I didn't get what I wanted over here. So I unplug from that church family and I plug into that church family. And I'm not saying there's not legitimate reasons to switch churches. There can be. I'm just saying this, that the, the mood of our culture places little to no value on church as an actual family. Little to no value. It's our family by birth way up here in importance and our family by rebirth way down here in importance. And this passage is trying to show us that's wrong. That's a sinful way to look at life. Your family by rebirth is more real and more lasting than your family by birth. So let me apply it just by asking you some questions. Is your church family, does it feel like and do you see it like actual family? And listen, that didn't happen overnight. And, and that doesn't happen without your effort in a lot of different ways. But I'm just asking, do you see it that way? Do you value a church family like that? Where we can fight together, where you don't have to get what you want all the time, I don't have to get what I want all the time, and we still stick in as family? Like, do you see church like that, as family, as important family, as more real and more lasting family? I'll just give you some diagnostic questions on that. I think you would have a hard time convincing me that you value your church family like this passage would, would tell us to, if you're not involved in a home group, I, I don't think you're valuing it that way. 
I think you would see uh, your church as someplace you come into and then you leave without any investment into a family. That's not the way your biological family works. You don't just come and eat a meal and leave without any investment into the people of your family. And so if you're not in a home group, I, I just don't think you're, you're seeing, I, maybe just hit this way, if you're not deeply invested into a home group, I think it's showing you that how you value a church family is different than how Jesus is saying we should value a church family. There's just a difference in that. And, and maybe I can press home group one step further and say this. I'm not even saying that you're casually connected to a home group. See, like this passage is not saying that, that if you're in a home group, that, that you are seeing this whole thing clearly, that your family is, church family is really important to you. You can, you, you can casually be connected to a home group without embedding your life into that group. Like if you're the person where literally the comments have to align for you to show up at a home group, that's just showing you something. Like if you get home and let's say your home group meets on Tuesday night and you look at your yard and think, you know what, I really need to get the yard done instead of going to home group. That's a value statement. If you feel like, man, this is a long day at work. I'm a little tired. You know, my, my favorite TV show is on. I'm just going to sit and veg. That's a value statement. It, it's showing you what your heart considers more valuable. See, it's just showing you where the differences are between how Jesus sees your church family and how you currently see your church family. And I mean, we could talk about a lot of different angles on this. We could talk about serving. If you're not serving in some way, shape, or form in the context of your church family, you're probably not seeing it like Jesus does here. Giving would be another good indication of this. What you, what you value and highly esteem, you give to. I think it's just a way to show you, do I value it like that? We could talk about attendance on Sunday morning. Be another really easy place to see that. Like if, if your kids' sports are consistently keeping you away from Sunday mornings, you can call it what you want, but that's a value statement. Amen. It's saying something about what you value, and you're teaching that value. So, so I'm just saying, there are, we could talk about this forever, but the, the point of the question is, are you valuing a church family like that? Like, like Jesus is saying here, that it is more real and more lasting than even your biological family. Okay, that's implication number one. Here's implication number two, and this one is even more painful. Implication number two goes like this. A Christian's family is made up of Every nation, tongue, and tribe. So we are about to deal with this word racism. And let's preface this by saying uh, I'm probably about to step on some toes and maybe some throats. And it's only because it's necessary. So I want you just to feel that before we even get going here. So let me, let me just preface it by saying this. It, and let me just address our white folk in the room. If you are white and you're an American, here's what you need to know. You have grown up in the majority culture, which means you do not have a grid or a framework that even thinks about race or racism. And on top of that, you just need to know this. I need to know this about me. You need to know this about you if you're a white American. 
So not only do we not have a grid that thinks about race or racism, we don't have to have a grid because we're in the majority culture. If you were in the minority culture, you would have a grid for that. If you picked up and moved your family to Africa tomorrow, you would have a grid for it immediately. So because we're in the majority culture, we don't have a grid. You need to know that first. And secondly, you need to know this about you being in the majority culture. That it has probably produced in you ignorance toward race and racism. You're oblivious to a lot of the realities around it and about it and and, and with it. And you probably think very simplistically about it. So just know those things. If you're a white American, just assume that about you before you say anything about race and racism. Okay, now with that said, uh, let me jump in. And let me start by saying this. I wish that I could say racism was in our distant past, but that is not true. It is in our recent past. My dad is 65, turned 65 today, and I was talking to him on the phone last night. And I asked him, hey, do you remember when your school was desegregated? He said, yes, I was in the fourth grade. I asked Bruce Tidmore right out here on the way in. Um, Bruce is 55. I asked him, hey, do you remember when your school was desegregated? Yes, I do. I was in junior high, which means this. If you're 50 or older in the room, there is a good chance you remember when your school went through desegregation. Now, listen to this statement from one guy that's 70, a white guy talking about, talking about this whole idea of segregation. He says it this way. I think it'll be on the screen for you. Segregation was the world we grew up in. Now listen to this, legally mandated separation of races at all kinds of levels. Separate schools, separate motels, separate restrooms, separate swimming pools, separate drinking fountains. How could you more clearly communicate the lie, let me emphasize the lie, that being black was like a disease? It had an unbelievably oppressive and demeaning effect on the African-American community. And it had a deadening and defiling effect on the conscience of white, of the white community. Now, I, I just think about that and I would, I would, and I'm just talking from a 30, mid-30s type of a perspective. I would swear that had to have been 300 years ago. But can I, listen, that was 60 years ago. 60 On May 17th, 1954 is when the Supreme Court decision called Brown versus Board of Education declared that state-imposed segregation in the public schools was a violation of the 14th Amendment. Listen, 60 years ago, are you seeing that? That is not distant ancient history. That is recent history. And can I just tell you, it's not even like recent history Racism, this whole idea is really recent history. Let me give you some examples of this. On on this being really recent history. On June 7th, 1998, not 68, not 48, not 28, 98, 1998, outside Jasper, Texas. This is in our state. In Jasper, Texas, James Byrd, a 49-year-old African-American, was beaten and chained by his ankles to the back of a pickup truck and dragged two miles until his head ripped off. The perpetrators had racist tattoos, one of them depicting a black hanging from a tree. Many things have changed in the last 40 years, but in some deep things haven't changed. There's still plenty of hate. Now, would we agree with that? 
We're not talking 40 years ago, 60. We're talking 15 years ago. And how about this? And, and let me just, and by the way, this is where it's going to get really offensive to some. Uh, but let's talk about interracial marriage. If you want to cut to the core of where racism still lies in a lot of people, welcome to the issue. Now listen to a, a couple of things here. As late as 1958, so 1958, only 4% of American whites approved of interracial marriage. So four out of 100 in 1958 approved of it. Keep going here. Interracial marriage was against the law in 16 states in 1967. So it's not just that we don't like it. It's against the law. It's illegal to do it. Is, is that not crazy? In 16 states in 1967, when the Loving versus Virginia Supreme Court decision struck down those laws. Okay, now listen to this. This is where it gets really recent. Not until 1998 did South Carolina, 1998 did South Carolina remove from their state constitution language that prohibited marriage of a white person with a Negro or mulatto or a person who shall have one eighth or more Negro blood. 1998. According to a Mason-Dixon poll four months before the vote in 1998, 22% of South Carolina voters were opposed to the removal of that clause. A court, one out of four opposed in 1998 to that being removed. Let's keep going here. The legislature in Alabama took until the year 2000 to remove from the state constitution Article 4, Section 102, which said, The legislature shall never pass any law to authorize or legalize any marriage between a white person and a Negro or a descendant of a Negro. According to a poll conducted by the Mobile Register in September 2000, Virtually 20%, one out of five voters in 2000 in Alabama said they would not remove that section of, of the clause. Can, I'm, not, I'm about to say something that's going to get really, probably really offensive to some, and I'm perfectly okay with that. If you cannot celebrate a marriage between two Christians, any combination of black, brown, and white— if you cannot celebrate that marriage between those two Christians, let's call it what it is, you're a racist. And can I just tell you, that exists all over the place. Like this issue isn't gone. It hasn't disappeared. And, and let me be fair here. It goes in every direction. I've highlighted white and black in, in this, what I've just done. But it is black towards white. It is brown towards black. It is black towards brown. It cuts in every direction. Racism is no respecter of skin color. It is everywhere. And here is the good news of what this passage is saying here. That Jesus, right here in this passage, and the gospel in general throughout the Bible, demolishes racism. It, it does away with racism. This is the good news of the gospel is the gospel is God's way of dealing with conflict between races. I, at the cross, your color and your culture gain you nothing. The cross is the great leveler. There is no partiality based on your color and, and your culture. The only partiality you get at the cross is in Jesus, regardless of your color. 
So we need to see that, that the only thing that has the gravity to pull all of our race, you know, our, our races together, all of our cultures, all of our ethnicity, the only thing that has the power to uproot our racism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, can I just tell you, there is only two races of people. There is the race of the redeemed and the unredeemed. And if you see more broadly than that, something is wrong. I I love how John Piper says it in his book, Bloodlines. He says it this way. This should be on the screen for you. The bloodline of Jesus Christ is deeper than the bloodlines of race. The death and resurrection of the Son of God for sinners is the only sufficient power to bring the bloodlines of race into the single bloodline of the cross. Yes and amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. I want to end with this and we'll kind of finish up over in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. It'll be on the screen for you. If you just don't have a Bible, you feel free to look up. But if you have a Bible, that would be great. So in Revelation 5, we are getting this moment where God peels back the curtains so that we can have a view of heaven, of what is coming for every Christian. If you're in the family of God, if God has redeemed you and saved you, adopted you into the family, this moment is coming for you. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 says this, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain And by your blood, you might underline that phrase, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Talking about Jesus, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let me just point out two things out of that passage. Number one is you see God's intention in this passage God's intention goes like this. I want a people from every ethnicity. Like I want them from every one of them. I don't want heaven to be full of just black people, just white people, just Chinese people, just Mexican people. I want it of every peoples. This is God's intention. I don't want heaven to be, you know, homogeneous. I want it to have every sort of cultural diversity in it. Every ethnicity, all the languages, all the tribes, I want them all. Now, can I just ask you a question? If that's the heart of our daddy and we're a Christian, we're a son of his, don't you think it would be wise for us to develop that same heart? If that's the heart of our daddy. I think it gives our dad a lot of honor and a lot of blessing and a huge smile when his sons and daughters say, I want that too. And, and I don't just want it then. I want it now. That God's intention, every ethnicity. Now, now also look, look back there. I want you to see what God's costs were to do that. So if this is God's intention, what did it cost God to come through and to actually secure what he intends? You see it? By his blood. The blood of his son is what that required. 
God's intention, I want every ethnicity. And I want that so badly that I will purpose and plan the death of my son to secure it, to make that come to fruition. That I want white people, I want black people, I want brown people, I want them all so badly that I will plan the slaughter of my son so that I can get it. Now, I think that just leads to a real practical question. If ethnic diversity is that important to God, shouldn't it be that important to his church? I mean, shouldn't it be that important to his church? I mean, if it's that important to God where he would slaughter his own son to get it, I I just think if, if we're his sons and daughters, it probably should be important to us as well. And can we just be brutally honest for a second and just see and know and admit that the truth is the church doesn't care about it? Doesn't care. That the words of Martin Luther King Jr. 60 years ago still ring true, if not even more true today, when he says this. We must face the sad fact that at the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning, when we stand to sing great gospel songs about how God reconciles all the ethnicities, When we stand and sing, we stand in the most segregated hour in America. And the most segregated school is Sunday school. If you think about diversity in a church, like we'll call a diverse church a church that has at least 20% minority of some way, shape, or form. So if you're an African-American, primarily African-American church, you don't have more than 80% African-American. You have at least 20% something else. If you're in a Hispanic church, you have at least 20% something else. If you're predominantly white, you have at least 20% something else. If that's our measure for diversity, that's what we'll call a diverse church, in all the churches in America, you know how many would, would qualify all the churches in America? 7%, 7 out of 10. At least 20% something else. Now, if you shrink that down from every church in America to, I'm going to narrow that down to this statement, Jesus-loving churches in America. Just separate every other thing that would call themselves church out of that, Jesus-loving. You know what that percentage is? Less than 3%. Less than 3%. And can I just tell you, that shouldn't be. That should not be. Is that hard? Yes. It costs Jesus his son. Is it going to be hard for us? Yes. Is it going to cost for us? Yes. And are we willing to pay the price for that? I just want you to hear this clearly. Yes. That I just want you to know and feel this, that we are taking this issue very seriously. That it's going to be one of the things that we lay over our church and our decision making that helps form a grid for how we would make decisions that we want to be representative of our community when it comes to ethnicities. So we're going to take that very seriously because we want to take what what God takes very seriously, seriously. So let me just apply this and and we'll kind of wrap this up here. Let me apply it by, by saying this. I'm not saying that the number one emphasis of your life has to be racial reconciliation. Some, and I hope some in our church will feel called to that, to make it the number one emphasis of your life. But it won't be all. It'll be very few. So I'm not asking everyone to make it the number one emphasis in your life, but I am asking you to do this, to make it a emphasis of your life. To make it, to make it a emphasis. Something that you do care about. Something that you do promote. Something that you are working toward. 
And listen, we're not just, we're not just going for diversity in a Sunday morning gathering. We are going for diversity around your dinner tables. My dinner table. Like that, that sort of diversity is, is what we're going after. So maybe I could say it this way. Maybe on a practical note, what if you put yourself in a position to where you are the only? Or that you get to know the other? What are those two? That you're the only or you get to know the other? Uh, a few weeks ago, my neighbor, we have two African-American neighbors that are on our street. and Actually three, no four. We have four African-American neighbors on our street. <laughs> Doing quick math in my head here. And uh, we had uh, one of them invite us over the other day. And uh, it was my family, five little white guys, walking into their house, and we were the only. That's my wife. We were the only. And can I just tell you something? It was awesome. It was awesome. I loved it. I loved it for the sake of my kids. I loved it for my sake to get to learn a new culture. And put yourself in a position where you're the only. Maybe I can say it this way. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat how another pastor said it. If you're a Timmy, get to know a Maurice. And if you're a Maurice, get to know a Timmy. Like you get to know somebody that's not like you. Like you, you just make this A emphasis of your life. That you, you have a diversified dinner table. And real quick, before I move on, let, let me say this. If you are a minority and we're talking Hispanic, we're talking about anything other than white in the room. I just want to make sure we cast this vision in front of you. That This is a desire we have to be more ethnic diverse as a church family. And I just want you to know and feel that we need you to help us in that. And I want to thank you for putting up with our ignorance, with our lack of sensitivity, with our just lack of seeing through any sort of racial lens, just our lack of just total ignorance when it comes to those things. And I just want you to know again that, that we need you to help us in that. Okay, and I'll close with this idea. Um, the implication number three of this text. Jesus says, you want to know who my mother and my brothers and my sisters are? Those who do the will of God. Third implication. And this is the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The family of God is open to all who believe. It's open to all. White, black, brown, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter how much you've sinned, how good you think you've been, it is open to all. Amen? See, like, inside of these hard words of Jesus is actually a really soft invitation that goes like this. You believe in me, you can be in my family. Black, white, brown, you, you can be in my family. I, like, I, I love even you. Doesn't matter what you've done, you can be in my family. I mean, I, I pray that for some of us in the room who we have been tiptoeing around this thing for a long time, might just feel this invitation from God in this passage this morning when he's just saying, listen, believe in Jesus and you can be in my family. I'd love to have you in my family. You're not an outcast. I, 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 I want you to be in, in my family. I, mean, I pray that we would respond appropriately to that. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.